Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Ben Campbell, and welcome to the Everyday Theology Podcast, where we as ordinary pastors connect theological truths to ordinary everyday believers just like you and me. I am joined by the one, the only, Matthew John Mauser. How's it going in Georgia? Oh, things here in Georgia are good. No complaints here. Just grand, huh? Yeah, man. Yeah. Everything. We've hit the summer, so summer's a busy season. It turns out in ministry, every season has busyness, so, which <laughs> yeah. is not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. People, you know, I, I get it in youth ministry. Summer's really busy, but uh, it's funny. Like, so is every other season. I get it. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. So we are continuing our tradition of Four Lindsay and Friday, and we are going to actually do something different. We're going to cover two um, different chapters this week. That would be chapters 16 and 17 of The Quest for Truth. And the reason we're doing this, dear listener, is because uh, they are both covering the topic of election, but it's just scriptural support for both sides of, of the election argument. So chapter 16 will be a, um, a challenge to the exegetical support for unconditional election. And then chapter 17 is uh, scriptural support for conditional election. So um, as it would seem, Four Lines is going to be challenging unconditional election, but also supporting conditional election. Matt, any uh, introductory thoughts before we dive headfirst into this? Well, I, I think one thing that I'll remind our listeners of, we covered um, we covered this a little bit in regards to election the last Four Lines and Friday, where we talked about the the cause and effect model versus the influence and response model that four lines introduces and i think that's a just a good thing to keep in mind and i guess one other note that i'll make is i i find it uh commendable by mr four lines that he he looks at the approach from both sides and he is faithful to god's word yeah i agree and i think i think this is good and important for um aspiring theologians to understand that that one of the main things they can do in their time in their quest for you know uh their theology is that i think it's good for them to understand that you uh the best thing you one of the best things you can do is understand the other side of the argument really if you don't understand the other side you know, it may be a stretch to say this, but most of your arguments are just going to be straw man and ad hominem. And so because because you don't understand their position and so you won't attack their position as a defense of your own, but you'll attack them or um, or just a very skeleton portion of their argument. So um, I think that's 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 commendable in a, in so many ways. So. Four Lines gives basically just a few proof texts here for unconditional election. I think on the onset, one of the things that we need to acknowledge um, 
is that I don't know if it's in this chapter or if it's in other uh, chapters, but Forlines is very adamant that Calvinism is a biblical view, and that and that those who believe in Calvinism are not heretics. And he has gone so far as to even say that um, Calvinism is an airtight system logically. And I, again, I'm not sure where he says that, um, but it is consistent in its own system. Um, now, that doesn't mean that four lines believe it's consistent with Scripture, and we're about to see that. Um, so one of the things, one of the passages, of course, one of the biggest proof texts for Classical Calvinism is Romans 9, 10, and 11. Um, you know, on Romans 9, 14 is one of, uh, is, is the first mentioned verse. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And so four lines gives them the understanding that Paul is raising the question of whether God is um, unjust by stating, you know, that one of the most famous uh, verses for Calvinism and unconditional election, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. They take that to mean that this is a, this is a text for unconditional election that God has in one sense or another elected Jacob and condemned Esau. Four lines doesn't necessarily have that issue. Four lines doesn't have um, that issue at all. In fact, um, if you really want a good treatment of four lines' opinion on Romans 9, you need to check his commentary. Yeah. Probably one of the best um, works of four lines was his Romans commentary because it shows him that he is more than just a systematic theologian. He's a biblical theologian. He's an expositor. And he, he not only has the discipline of just, you know, systematically theologizing, but he can also, he can also, you know, exposit. Um, so four lines deals with this in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. Four lines says, that in the context of the Abrahamic covenant, it's not the ones who are in Israel that are that are of God, but it's the ones who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. He says on page 358, these are what he calls, quote, true Israel. Um, and so instead, what we have here is four lines showing that the way in which one comes to be a part of the true Israel, again, is by faith in Christ. Um, and it has nothing to do with um, with who, from whom you descend. Is there any comments there, Matt, that you want to make? No, not necessarily anything that's going to bring more light to what you've just touched on, but but I think it's 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 important to understand the specific context of what's being alluded to in Romans 9, 14. You have, you, you can't just take that verse on its own, but you have to look into the context and the, 
several verses that come prior to uh, verse 14 speak to the Abrahamic covenant and um, and what Paul touches on what, what took place there. Uh, he even goes as far as to make references to Sarah and Rebecca and those sorts of things. Yeah, I wanted to bring out uh, his his Romans commentary um, just because I think this is important. Um, he says, if this is the case, um, that is that God has hated Esau completely and Jacob, he has loved. He says, then the Jews have no difficulty with the rejection of Ishmael or Esau. And he says, this is true, whether the concern with was with individual salvation or with the exclusion of Ishmael, Esau, and their descendants from the covenant seed of Abraham. Um, and so he says the concern that the unbelieving Jew would have had about God's righteousness was that for God not to follow through with the unconditional election of all Jews meant that God had not kept his word. And for God to fail to keep his word would mean that he would be unrighteous. Right. Again, you have a little bit of a catch-22. Either God has unconditionally elected all Jews or he's elected them based on condition that would be faith in Christ. Um, Go ahead. I was going to make one note regarding justice just overall because it's often that you hear people criticize the Bible and and maybe this is a little bit more from an apologetic standpoint, but People will say, well, it seems like for God to pick and choose who is saved and who is not saved is not uh, justice. But the just thing for God to do without any sort of mercy or grace inserted into the situation would be for all human beings to be condemned to hell because that's what we are all deserving of. And so because he is a just God that also has mercy you and I would contend for the fact that there is a condition that's involved in saving faith. And I'm, I'm allowing the uh, cart to get a, a bit above or a bit ahead of the horse there, I think, because we're still talking about unconditional election, but th- that's one thing that I always feel like needs to be talked about when we talk about justice and injustices at the end of the day, it would be the just thing. It would be justified for God to condemn all of mankind to hell. But because of the cross and because of grace, uh, that that doesn't happen. Right. So that's exactly what he says on 363. Paul has shown, he says, that there is no basis for the idea that all Jews, as the covenant seed of Abraham, are saved. God has never made such a promise. Therefore, he cannot be charged with being unrighteous by not bringing it to pass. And that, that's the thing is, is if, if Jews are unconditionally elected and corporately, like many Calvinists believe, then it would follow that God would be unjust by not electing them. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what you're, you're saying right there. Right. Well, and for ones also, uh, as a part of this discussion, I mentioned how important the context is. He says that verse 14 is actually a reference back to verse 6 in Romans 9, where Paul writes, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So yeah. you mentioned earlier the, uh, the true Israel. Not everyone who ha- comes from that bloodline receives salvation. Exactly. That makes sense from a logical standpoint. Well, you know, it's uh, you know Ezekiel tells us that uh, that we cannot be responsible for the faith of our children. Yeah. Um, you know, we can we can do a lot to influence our children and to raise our children the, the in the ways of the Lord and and you know to um you know to disciple them. But ultimately like that it's not our choice whether or not they follow Jesus. So he continues the conversation in going to verse 15 of chapter 9. Um this is the I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And basically what Four Lines is doing here is he's agreeing that election here is individual election. Um, What he's saying is that, well, he agrees with Tom Schreiner, actually, um, is that God's mercy, Schreiner says, does not depend on the one who wills nor the one who runs. He says it utilizes the singular once again. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So in one sense or another, some may say, well, Four Lines is having his cake and eating it too. No, what Four Lines is saying is that God can choose because he is God and because he has the ability to choose. It has nothing to do with whether or not the person is elect, God can do what he wants to do. Yeah. It, the use of mercy there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but yes, mercy is involved in salvation, but I don't think that in this case, mercy always equals a, uh, a salvific reference. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, 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 of course. Um that yeah, I think I think that's right. Um and one of the things too, so he goes on 370 to Romans 918, the hardening of hearts. Um and one of the things he says is that that God does work in such a way that spiritual blindness or hardness results is clear, that this is a judicial work is clear. What we do not know is how to explain this to our fullest satisfaction in keeping with human responsibility or the nature of God. Um, but the thing about it is, so what Fourline says here with with like God hardening the heart of Pharaoh, that's where Paul's going with this, is he, on 371, he says, hardness, while not to be taken lightly, does not necessarily imply that a person is in a hopeless condition. Um, but more importantly, he says Paul himself was hardened before his conversion. So Fourline's logic here is to say, you know, again, God can God can harden a person's heart, yet still save the man. Um, you know, all of us probably at some point in time 
become hard and calloused. Um, but that doesn't mean that we are unsavable. The Bible does not say that the hardness of our heart is what is the unforgivable sin. And that's what Four Lines is getting at here is that there's not, um, this is not like an, an unconditionally um, scenario where the election is based on whether or not the heart is softened or hardened. Yeah, I actually, I had the opportunity to teach on the concept of the hardening of a person's heart. And I think the primary text I actually used was Hebrews 3, 8, um, where the author of Hebrews says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the last day of testing in the wilderness. And one thing that uh, is important to, to keep in mind, just with the, I just want to touch on this because uh, it's the topic at hand when it comes to hardening of the heart, mm -hmm. um, is that this does, the hardening of a person's heart does not prevent that person's heart. And this is what you were alluding to earlier, does not prevent them from, from believing at some point. Um, I think it's also interesting for us when we look at the hardening of a person's heart to understand it and keep in mind that oftentimes, yes, it, it is God who hardens, who who can harden someone's heart against himself. But there are also instances, and I think of Pharaoh in, in this particular instance, there are also times where people harden their own hearts. And so that you have to keep that in mind when, when we're talking about election is what has taken place uh, prior to the hardening of someone's heart for their heart to be hardened. I said that a lot of times, but <laughs> yeah. How much would, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> but well, yeah. And the thing about it is, is, is could it be that God hardening the heart of Pharaoh is, his allowance of the heart of Pharaoh to be hardened. Mm -hmm. Not that God himself would actually harden, though that may, that could be a possibility, but right. that Pharaoh in choosing to live his life in such a, in a certain way, hardened his own heart. Mm -hmm. If we truly believe that, that men and women are total persons we we have to believe they make choices and if we do believe that they make choices then we must believe that their choices affect how they view god and how they um you know how they live and how they act righteously or unrighteously yeah all of that all of that are all of those things are factors to you know, the, the openness or the closedness to the Lord. Yeah. So I want to go to chapter 17 now, um, because I, I want to, I want to study this a little bit more fully because four lines in the scriptural support for conditional election does not just simply give some verses and then talk about them, but he actually uses um, some some of his time here to talk about things like 
predestination and foreknowledge. And then he gives a, a thorough treatment of Ephesians 1 in this. And so um, what, what he does here in uh for the for predestination is he shows us that there is um the greek word is proorizo and it means to predetermine a particular thing that will take place and it's used six times and so what he does is he just gives those six times um he says acts 428 first corinthians 2 7 Romans 8, 29 and 30, Ephesians 1, 5, Ephesians 1, 11. Um, but ultimately, I mean, and, and the listeners can, can you know, look these verses up, but you know that, uh, you know, Romans 8, 29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Um, and basically what, what Four Lines does is he shows us that when the Bible speaks of predestination, it's talking about believers. It's talking about those that are already in Christ. Um, you can think of Acts 4, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined beforehand to be done. Um, God predetermined that Christ would be crucified, and in connection with that event, Forlund says he would suffer the full wrath of God and make atonement for the sins of the human race. Um, you get to Romans 8. Forlund says it's believers. Ephesians 1, 5, Ephesians 1, 11 is talking about believers. Forlund mentions how many times Ephesians 1 uses the phrase in Christ. Mm. And so he says predestination is just as essential for classical Arminianism as it is for Calvinism. If there is no predestination, there is no gospel. So uh, when you think about this, what Fourline says here is that predestination is not a, a bad word. It's not an anti-Arminian word. It's not an anti-reformed Arminian word. It is a word that is uh, a Bible word, and he even says on 394, the bottom of 394, Armenians need to reclaim the word predestination. But what Four Lines interprets here is that what is predestined has already been found in Jesus Christ, and that leads us to foreknowledge. Um, so, Matt, you want to show us those verses on foreknowledge that, and kind of give an overview on 395? Yeah, so the, the word for foreknowledge or to foreknow is found five times in the New Testament, Acts 26.5, Romans 8.29, Romans 11.2, 1 Peter 1.20, and 2 Peter 3.17. Um, now, that's to foreknow. The, that would be the, the, let's see, the verb form. The, the noun foreknowledge is, is only found twice in the New Testament in Acts 2.23 and 1 Peter 1.2. And once again, four lines kind of breaks each of those down here. Yeah, he actually says that Calvinist be believes that the, the Acts 2 and the 1 Peter 1 affirm that predestination, election, and foreknowledge are synonymous. One of the things he says is that he does not believe that this verse requires people to understand the word 
prognoses, foreknowledge to be efficacious. And that would make it synonymous with predetermined or predestinated. Um, he refers to Acts 2.23. Um, when you look at Acts 2.23, um, Paul says that Jesus of Nazareth being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, yet have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And what Fourline says is that the foreknowledge of God enabled him to see the future as if it were the present. He says, mm -hmm. I do not believe everything was or is present to God, but he saw the future as fully and completely as he does the present. Yeah. So in other words, what Fourline says here is that there is a, there is a, there is a time limitation to us as finite human beings that, that we don't see this, the, this, issue the same way God sees it because he's outside of that box of time. Yeah. And so what we find is that there is uh that God looks at events that are in the future because he's all knowing because he's omnipresent and can confirm that they are certain even though they haven't happened yet. Um and Thus, we find that God can foreknow what will happen, happen because he can see the future fully and complete. Well, then four lines comes to the end of, of chapter 17, and he comes to uh, the New Testament use and meaning of the word election. What does it mean to be elect? Um, and, and basically... He goes to Ephesians 1, he goes to 2 Thessalonians 2, but then he ends up even going, you know, how, how can um, Arminians believe in a conditional election for the whole world? Well, um, I want to go to 407 here, the top of 407, when he uses it, when he comments on First John 2, 2. That's one of my most favorite verses. Um, and he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Four lines says here, I mean, it, just the natural reading of the text, you know, take it Greek or English, sh says here that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. I mean, to me, and I think to four lines as well, you've got to do some exegetical gymnastics to get a different opinion than that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and he kind of concludes at the end of that, based on that understanding regarding the atonement, that if we pair atonement with election here, it seems as though God decided to make atonement for those he had elected. And that's the that's the conclusion that that four lines makes here. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Four lines, four lines is saying Christ's death paid for the sins of humanity, but election doesn't. But because we believe Christ's death paid for all sin debt, does not mean that God's election is universal. Right. 
because election is not based on um, any type of unconditional scenario. It's based on faith in Christ. And we know not all people will have faith in Christ. I, I love how Four Lines is just really forthright here, but he says, top of page 407, the only reason for taking a verse whose meaning is apparent and applying a strained interpretation would be their belief that the decree to elect preceded the decree to provide atonement. In other words, what, what Fourline says is that the Calvinist understanding of this basically says that God decided whom he wanted to save before he ever decided to send Christ and pay for their sure. for, for their sin debt. Well, and I, I want to, I guess, jump back a little bit. I should have mentioned this earlier, but and we covered it somewhat, but the, there is a relationship between uh, the elect and the foreknowledge of God. Right. And you can you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way that I would understand this is that election does not take place without the omniscience and foreknowledge that God has of, of how things are going to turn out. Right. God elects based on those who are in Christ. Yes. That he okay, so again, Romans 8:29. For those whom he foreknew, mm -hmm. he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Four lines in his commentary says, who can be conformed to the image of Jesus? Only those who are in Christ. That's right. That's Unbelievers right. can't be conformed to the image of Jesus. There's no way that can happen. That's right. impossible. So, so what four lines says is, is again, like you have to take this on the basis of foreseen faith. Yeah. And you have to take it on the, on the basis that, God's desire is that all men would be saved, even though all men will not be saved. So, uh, Matt, let's let's uh, give us a, a little bit of a concluding thought. Anything uh, encouraging about this at all? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if if we take a step back and just look at this, uh, at the the concept of election those I would assume that are listening to our podcast have faith in Jesus Christ. They have confessed with their mouths. They believed in their hearts. And so we can take a step back and, and say that, yes, amen. We, we have, we are the elect. Uh, we, our sins have been washed away by the blood of the lamb and it's easy in conversations like this to get bogged down just in the the various nuances and the, the various passages of scripture and forget that we're talking about the greatest event that's ever taken place right. in in the history of the universe uh, that that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that he was raised from the dead on the third day so that salvation could happen in the first place and so uh, i hope that we we never lose the joy of understanding salvation, even in the midst of important theological conversations like this. Yeah, one of the things that um, I want to conclude with is what Four Lines concludes with. It's the final paragraph of chapter 17. He says, as Arminians, we should feel rebuked by these, those Calvinists who are faithful in their obedience to the Great Commission. He says, if conditional election is correct, and I believe it is, 
We must get under the burden of reaching lost people for Christ. We must feel deeply about it. We must feel convicted about it, and we must do better. We should be drawn to action when we think about this. It, and I think that's what Forgods is getting at here. Yeah, if there is a condition and the gospel is free to all who will receive it, then we need to be the ones to take it to the world. Yeah, that's good. And I think that's the perfect word to end on. Dear listeners, thanks for joining us today. We know that this has been a very uh, weedy discussion. It's been a lot of uh, kind of can you miss the forest for the trees types of things, but it is important and it is um, vital to understanding our lives as missional and what we are to do as evangelists for uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Join us next week as we continue our study and discussion of the Free Will Baptist Catechism. We pray that these truths will reach you for your good and for God's glory.